All right, take a Bible. If you want a head start on the first passage that we're going to look at, it's going to be Genesis 4, and then we're just going to kind of work through the Bible a little bit, uh, several different ways tonight. Tonight, uh, we have Wednesday night church. Next week, we have Wednesday night church, and then we're on summer break. So after tonight, we only have one more Wednesday night. When we come back in the fall, uh, we'll be back to our normal Wednesday night routine in August, middle of August, and we're going to study in here, and the college kids and the youth, we're going to study the lives of the kings of Israel and Judah. So we're going to talk about some good kings, and we're going to talk about some bad kings, and what can you learn from those men in their lives. We spent a long time on Wednesday nights, not long ago, talking about the life of David, and this will be a little bit more... Uh, in and out each week as we talk about some of those different kings. But tonight we're talking about the Bible. The subtitle of this series is Doctrine and Hermeneutics. And so we started off with doctrine. What is it that we believe about the Bible? And we summarized it with these words. We talked about inspiration, inerrancy, perspicuity, authority, necessity, sufficiency, power, unity, and beauty. Then we've been talking about, in the second half of this series, hermeneutics. How do we interpret the Bible? How do we make sense of the Bible? And we've talked about a lot of different things. We talked about the canon. What is the Bible itself? All these other hermeneutical rules are sort of like the rules of a a game or an athletic contest. When we talked about the canon, that was saying, here's the playing field. These are the books that we're actually talking about when we say, how do we interpret the Bible? Why is it the Bible as we have it? Why is it these 66 books? Why are there not more? Why are there not less? We've talked about uh, the interpreter and some basic tools, and we've talked about all these different genres of the Bible and different rules that apply to different genres, different tips and tricks as you work through poetry or narrative or whatever it may be. Tonight, we're talking about idioms, metaphors, and hyperbole. This is stuff that is in the Bible at the very beginning all the way through the very end. It's not unique to any one specific genre. It's just literary things, pieces of writing that show up all the way through the Bible. And you just need to be aware that these things are there, that they're present. And you've got to have some idea about how to handle them and how to think through some of these passages. What we're trying to do on Wednesday nights in this second half of this series is to equip you not just to come listen to sermons, not just to sit in Sunday school classes and participate, but to actually study the Word of God on your own without frustration, without confusion, without going off uh, in the wrong direction. Really what we're trying to equip you to do is in the year 2021 to make a stand on the Bible that it is true that it is good, that it is right, that it applies to our lives, that God actually knows what he's talking about when he reveals truth to us in the Bible. And it's not something we need to be ashamed of or embarrassed about. And I think it's important if that's the end goal, that you're able to stand on the word of God with confidence that you know how to handle it and you know how to study it. So let me start with a quick story. When I was in college, I signed up for a summer missions opportunity. And when I signed up for this summer missions opportunity, it was through the North American Mission Board, and they said, where do you want to go? You had to pick on the bottom of the form. What state do you want to go to? 
And I've told you guys this part of the story before. The, the person leading the little seminar said, you can put Hawaii, no one goes to Hawaii. You can put Florida, we don't send you to Florida. You can put California, we're not sending you to California. So put whatever you want, we're gonna send you where we wanna send you. So I put Hawaii, Florida, California. And they contacted me, I think because of the reference my pastor gave me, who's here tonight, sitting over here, David's sitting over here. He probably gave me a, a glowing reference that maybe was not entirely deserved. And they called me and they said, we're sending you to Hawaii. And so this is the church that I worked at for a whole summer, Kona Baptist Church in Hawaii. And I did a lot of stuff at this church over about a two and a half month period. The first thing they did really made me mad when I got there. I was ready to do something spiritual and they handed me a bucket of paint and said, go paint the sign. And I thought, oh, that is stupid. But it was important and it was valuable to go out there and paint the sign. So I painted the sign. Uh, organized a VBS, helped lead worship. Uh, their worship leader was on, uh, in the United States, so I helped lead worship uh, over the summer. Uh, we did a lot of different things. The one thing we did every single week, a couple of times a week, was we taught ESL classes, English as a Second Language classes. There are an incredible number of migrant workers in Hawaii for agriculture. And a lot of them come to work, they have no idea how to communicate in English, and so these ESL classes were a great opportunity to reach out to these folks and share the gospel with them. So some of the ESL classes were like brand new people to the United States. They didn't speak hardly any English, and you're just starting with the very most basic things. But most of the summer, I worked with the, what is the advanced class. It's the people who speak pretty good English, they know a lot of vocabulary words. They're pretty good at getting the syntax right because you know in different languages, word order is a little bit different, but they've pretty much figured out the syntax and they can conjugate verbs on the fly and they say the verbs in the right tense and all those things. But one of the things they struggled with were idioms. Idioms. Uh, let me just give you a few examples of idioms. If I said... He's beaten a dead horse. And you don't know what that means. You think, well, that's kind of weird. Why would you beat a dead horse? If I said, well, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. And you don't know what that means. You might know what under means. You might know what the, the article means. You might know what weather is. But when I put those words together in that phrase, you think, under the weather, I don't get it. Someone is as fit as a fiddle. That's kind of old school. Some of you may, may have grown up saying something like that. Fit as a fiddle. It's a piece of cake. I'm just pulling your leg. Those are all things. You, the vocabulary is not complicated. But you put it together in that particular phrasing, and it means something entirely different. And the challenge is you have to learn these one at a time when you're learning English or any other language. You can't like learn a code to decode all idioms. You just have to learn them one at a time. What does this one mean? What does this one mean? What does this one mean? And every language has idioms. Any of you speak Spanish? Like really speak Spanish? Don't raise your hand just because you took Spanish in high school. Okay, so if you speak Spanish, don't embarrass me right now. You can fact check me after the service. Just pretend like I know what I'm talking about because I'm reasonably confident in my research here. Spanish has idioms. I'll give you an example of this. 
There's a phrase in Spanish called encontrar tu media naranja. It means, literally, if you translate the words, to find your half orange. Well, that doesn't make sense. What it really means is to find your perfect partner in the idiom that we would use is to find your better half. Here's the tricky part. If you're translating, which one of those do you go with? If you're translating, because the Bible has idioms, okay? All language has idioms. Do you translate it literally and it makes absolutely no sense? Or do you translate the meaning of it? Here, I've got a few more examples here. Estar como una cabra. You're like a goat. What it really means is you're crazy. And what we would say, our idiom is, is you're baddie, right? You're baddie. So you see there's an idiom at the top and an idiom at the bottom in the meeting in the middle. One more from Spanish. Ser un melón. To be a melon. is to be stupid. We would say you're a blockhead. Okay? You get the idea of an idiom? It's a grouping of words, and you can understand all the individual words in the idiom, but you may not understand the collection entirely. The Bible has these sort of things, and you've got to think through them. We haven't even got to metaphor. We haven't even got to hyperbole. So we'll just start with idiom. Robert Stein says the most difficult form of literature to interpret is idioms. He's not just talking about the Bible here. He's saying just across the board, this is like the highest level of language learning when you start to understand and learn all these idioms. You have grown up, most of you, I think, have grown up as English speakers. And so you've just learned these one at a time along the way. You take it for granted that you know what these things mean. But when you step into a new culture and a new language, there's idioms that you're not familiar with. Sometimes in language, math is sort of a, the way language functions. Two plus two equals four. So you say, Johnny kicked the ball. If you understand who Johnny is and you know what kicking is and you know what a ball is, you just add it all together and it makes sense. But sometimes, with an idiom, in language, two plus two equals five. And you say, oh, Johnny really blew it. Well, it doesn't mean he blew air out of his mouth. It means he messed up. He had a great opportunity, and he really just blew it. So there's a lot of idioms in the Bible. I'm just going to put some on the screen, and we're not going to look at all these, but we're going to look at some of them. Look at Genesis 4.1. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. I hope so. It's a good thing to know who your spouse is. We talked about this with reference to Jeremiah recently. When the Bible uses this word know, sometimes in the Bible, the word know, the verb know, is an intellectual cognitive thing. Sometimes it's a relational thing. In this instance, it's a very intimate thing. It's what happens between a, a husband and a wife, and the result is Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, and they called him Cain. In the book of Jeremiah, it's not just saying that God knew about Jeremiah, it's saying that he knew him in a personal way, in a relational way, in an intimate way. There was something substantive there. Look at Exodus chapter 3. I came across this one in my Bible reading, not in Exodus, but in the book of Numbers. Uh, it's the same phrase. It, it shows up a lot in the Old Testament. 
God says, I've come down to deliver them, Exodus 3, 8. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When I used to read that phrase as a child, I used to think about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in the great room where they go in and there's a chocolate river and I, I'm thinking, okay, I guess they got a milk and honey river. That's kind of weird. I don't, I don't know. That was just the mental image that pops into my brain. It's not saying that milk and honey are literally just flowing around everywhere. It's saying this is a fertile, good land. For people who make their living off agriculture, this is a place that you would like to be. Look over at Exodus chapter 32. Here's another one I came across this morning. Again, I was in Numbers, but it's a phrase that shows up a lot in the Old Testament. Exodus 32, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You should have brought a chiropractor with you out of Egypt. You should have brought somebody to align you out there in the desert. It's not talking about your posture. It's not talking about your neck. It's talking about the condition of your heart. It's a stiff-necked people. So you need to know what the, what the idiom means. Look at 1 Samuel 25. I debated whether or not to include this one. I actually, Corey's teaching for Jake tonight. Jake's on vacation And I told Corey, you cannot use this with middle school boys in the room. 1 Samuel 25, 22. This is David speaking, and he's really mad. And he says, God, do so to the enemies of David and more also. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him talking about Nabal. Anybody have a King James version of the Bible that you have open? Would any of you like to read that verse in the King James version? King James version doesn't use the word male. It uses the phrase, the one who pisses against the wall. That's straight out of the King James. It's an idiom talking about men. And the translators looked at that in the original Hebrew and they said, in the King James, they just put it literally in there. They said, figure out the idiom. And in the ESV, they said, you know, we're not going to put that in there. We're going to change it because what it means is male. So they just jumped right to the meaning. They're talking about men. That's an example of an idiom. Look at Psalm 10. Psalm 10. Psalm 10, 15. There's a lot of this stuff in the book of Psalms. Verse 15 is a prayer. The psalmist says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Does the psalmist really expect the Lord God to come down and snap forearms, dislocate shoulders? I don't think so, right? We talked about poetry and parallelism and the couplets, and there's a couplet here, and the two lines help you understand. They're essentially saying the same thing. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. This idea of an arm is often used to describe power. Think about God rescuing his people with a strong arm, a strong right hand. It's not talking about a literal piece of anatomy. It's saying God is powerful to save his people. And there's a sense in which the wicked have power. And the psalmist is praying, God, I want you to break their power. I want you to take care of their influence. 
in this instance. Look at Matthew 4. I know we're not covering all of these. Matthew 4, verse 2. It's talking about the temptation of Jesus. It says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It's entirely possible that 40 days and 40 nights means 40 literal days and 40 literal nights. It's entirely possible. There is also evidence from ancient Jewish literature that that's an idiom. That it's not necessarily talking about exactly 40 days, but it's just talking about a period of time. Longer than a week, shorter than a year. He was out there for a long time. It would be like you and me saying, I was wandering out in Gardendale forever. Well, I don't mean I was there from eternity past to eternity future forever. I mean, I was just out there for a really long time. Some people think, you can wrestle with this, that this 40 days, 40 nights is an idiom to say he was out there a long time. He wasn't eating. He wasn't drinking. Look at Mark chapter 16. Here's another one that's interesting. Mark 16, I told you I, I pastored a church in Kentucky uh, not six months went by, this is serious, this isn't a joke, not six months went by when we lived in Kentucky where a pastor or a church member in eastern Kentucky was not bitten by a rattlesnake because they were handling snakes in church. And so there's this verse in Mark 16, verse 18, that says they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Maybe that's literal. Pick up the snake, and it bites you, and it won't hurt you. And you think about maybe the story of Paul in the book of Acts. Maybe some people would suggest, Bible scholars would suggest, that's an idiom to say that your enemies won't have final victory over you. Some would say it's not even talking about an actual serpent. It's talking about your enemies. It's talking about anyone who stands against God's people. So it would kind of be important to know how am I going to interpret that verse? Do we need to join our friends in eastern Kentucky and have a box of rattlesnakes? Or do we look at that and say, no, I don't think that verse means that I need to pick up rattlesnakes. Something to think about. Let's look at a few more. 2 Timothy 4. says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Itching ears. They don't need cortisone cream. They have a, a wicked desire to hear things that they want to hear. Things that affirm them and what they believe and how they live and what they think is right. And they're just accumulating people who will so-called scratch that itch. That's another idiom. One last one. Look at Revelation 3. This is actually an important one in the book of Revelation. It shows up a lot. Revelation 3, verse 10, at the very end, it makes reference to, quote, and that's quote for me, those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth. That's a a phrase, it's an idiom in the book of Revelation. It doesn't just mean humans as opposed to those who have gone to Mars to colonize a new planet. 
those who are still on the earth, is talking about unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth. It's an idiom. When you understand it in the book, and it shows up multiple times, you understand they're talking about unbelievers in that context, and that's something that you need to know all the way through. So there's a lot of idioms. You just need to know that they're there. We could talk about this a lot. I'll put one more slide up. There are a lot of idioms that we use that if you trace it back, they're rooted in the Bible. So we say things like, well, the writing's on the wall. You can trace that all the way back through the English language to a biblical tradition of Daniel 5 or the story of the handwriting in the wall. That's where that idiom comes from. Uh, by the skin of your teeth. You won by the skin of your teeth. You made it by the skin of your teeth. That's a phrase from the book of Job. So there's a lot of idioms we use that you can trace back to the Bible. You've got to be aware of these things. A good study Bible can help you figure some of this stuff out. And the aim in all of these idioms is, what is the intent of the author? What are they trying to say? Sometimes in language, two plus two is four. And sometimes when you're reading an idiom, two plus two is five. And you've got to dig a little bit deeper to figure that out. All right, let's talk about metaphor. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or a phrase literally denoting one kind of object or idea is used in place of another to suggest a likeness or an analogy between them. That's from Sproul's book, Knowing Scripture. So a simile, maybe you remember this from sixth grade, a simile makes a comparison with the word like or as. A metaphor makes a comparison, but it doesn't use the word like or as. So a simile says, this is like this, and a metaphor simply says, this is this. Both of them are just trying to help you understand a comparison. Let's look at a few similes. Psalm 1. This is a great one. Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. There's your simile. The one who does those things is like a tree. What kind of tree? Well, one planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff. There's another simile with the word like. The wicked are like chaff, and the wind just drives it away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows, there's our word knows, he knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, there's a simile. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. I want to read this one because I'm going to reference it in just a minute. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, Paul says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will come like a thief comes in the night. Making a comparison. I want you to understand something about the way that a thief comes that catches you off guard and something about the return of Christ that again catches you off guard. He's making a comparison between these things. All right, now a few metaphors. Psalm 23, probably the most famous metaphor, maybe the most famous metaphor in the Bible. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't say the Lord is like 
my shepherd. It just says the Lord is my shepherd. It's a metaphor. He's not saying that the Lord actually is a mangy old dirty shepherd with a crook and a staff and he sleeps outside and he watches the sheep all night long. He's saying the Lord is my shepherd. He's making a comparison between what a shepherd does for the sheep and what the Lord does for his people. Look at Psalm 119, 105. You'll get the idea of it pretty easily, I think. 119, 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I realize your cell phone has a Bible on it and a flashlight on it, but that's not what the psalmist is talking about. Right? He's making a comparison. You understand what a light is. You understand what a lamp is. It provides guidance and illumination so that you know which way to go in the dark. And the Bible is like that. Except in this verse, he doesn't use the word like. He just says, your word is a lamp and it is a light. Here's a couple of examples where metaphors are really of some importance, okay? First of all, the I am statements of Jesus. All of his I am statements are metaphors. We're not gonna look them up, but I gave you all the references. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. All of those are metaphors, making a comparison between the object he's referencing and himself in those passages. Now, here's an example where this kind of really gets sticky in church life. Christians debate whether or not Jesus' instructions about the Lord's Supper include a metaphor. When Jesus gives instructions, as he's celebrating the Passover with the disciples the night before the crucifixion, and he says, take, eat, This is my body. Do it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. For many, many years, the dominant interpretation of that verse was that it was not actually a metaphor of any kind. The Roman Catholic Church said, no, in the mass, in Holy Communion, the elements that we take actually are They are his body and his blood. And they came up with this idea of transubstantiation. Luther, for all his reforms, he kind of ended up on the Roman side of this. And the Lutherans have a thing called consubstantiation. And it's kind of a modification of transubstantiation. And Luther essentially says, no, the, the body and the blood really is there. It's not really a metaphor in those verses. And there's a great story about some of the the disciples or the students of Calvin and they were having a discussion with Luther and they were arguing about the Lord's Supper because Calvin said, there's a metaphor there. It's not saying that it's literally his body and his blood. It's a symbolic thing. It's a memorial thing. I don't know if you've ever studied Luther, but Luther was stubborn. You had to be pretty stubborn to stand up to Rome. So pat him on the back for that. But in his stubbornness, you had the disciples of Calvin and Luther and they're arguing about the Lord's Supper and Calvin's guys say it's a metaphor, it's symbolic, it's a a spiritual reality. And this is what Luther would say over and over and over again. This is my body. And they would say, yeah, Luther, we know the verse. We know what it says. But it's a metaphor. 
and he would look at him and he would say, this is my body. And they would say, but Luther, we think there's a metaphor there. We don't think that's exactly what it means. And Luther would say, this is my body. And what Luther was saying is, take it literally. Take it literally. And the followers of Calvin were saying, okay, we want to take it literally, but we think that he literally implied a metaphor in that verse. And Luther would say, this is my body. It really wasn't much of a debate. It was one side arguing and Luther just saying the same thing over and over and over again. But you got to figure this out. And the disciples of Calvin, I think, were right to say, okay, but Jesus also said, I am the vine. I am the vine. Doesn't mean that he's a woody branch that sprouts and grows up a wall. It's a metaphor there. You use your same common sense when you're thinking about the Lord's Supper. Let me give you one more word of caution, okay? You can make the mistake of Luther and you can ignore the metaphors and just try to take everything literally and you end up with some weird stuff. You can also get weird by reading too much into metaphors and similes. And so here's one word of caution. This comes from Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. Permit us to warn readers against the over-interpretation of similes and metaphors. Over-interpretation occurs when the student draws meanings from an image that the poet never intended. You have got to take into consideration the intent of the author. And we talked about that weeks ago. Authorial intent has to drive interpretation. So we read 1 Thessalonians 5.2. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's a metaphor. It would be right to say, okay, there's something surprising about the return of Jesus. There's something unexpected about the return of Jesus. It would be over-interpretation to say, so when Jesus comes back, he's going to like break into houses and steal stuff, and you better make sure your car's locked. Don't leave it unlocked on the street. He's going to rifle through. That would be over-interpretation, okay? Psalm 92, you can look it up. It says, the righteous flourish like a palm tree. Does that mean all righteous people are tall and skinny like a palm tree? No. That would be over-interpretation. So you understand the metaphor, but you've got to be careful about adding too much to what the author is saying. All right, hyperbole. One more thing to, to work through here, hyperbole. Hyperbole is a literary device that uses exaggeration to make a point. There is actually exaggerated statements in the Bible, a lot of them. It's a literary technique. You find it in poetry. You find it in Proverbs a lot. You find it on the lips of Jesus a lot. I think the world's leading experts on exaggeration or hyperbole are children and teenagers. When they're trying to talk to their parents about something that they want, I think I've heard 50 examples of this just this last week. But dad, everyone at school fill in the blank. And you're a parent, you're grandparents, you know, you hear that and you say, really, everyone? Every single, well, no, dad, but. So you, well, you're exaggerating. When you look at your kids or your grandkids, you say, you're stretching the truth. Don't stretch the truth. Say, but dad, all the kids get to do this except me. 
all the kids, every single one. And you, you look at them, you say, all of them? Really? Because I know somebody else. Oh, dad, well, not all of them. Okay, but we instinctively do this. When you tell stories, you do this. Okay, if you're driving down the road on 42nd Street and somebody cuts you off and it kind of makes you mad, hard to imagine, I know. Later, you're going to tell the story and it's probably going to grow a little bit. You're going to be like, I was driving down the road, I was minding my own business, and this big, huge, giant oil field truck came up beside me and he was going 90 down the 42nd. Maybe that's not an exaggeration, but he's going 90. And he just, like, you, you tell, we tell stories like this. Here's what I'm saying to you. There are exaggerations in the Bible. There are hyperbole found throughout the Bible. It's a literary device that works when the author and the reader are both in on it. And it's not anyone trying to be dishonest, and it's not anyone trying to stretch the truth. Here's the value of hyperbole. You can communicate facts, and you can communicate emotion and feeling, and you can make a stronger point when you use this literary technique. So the use of hyperbole or exaggeration is perfectly acceptable literary form when shared by writer and reader. When it's used in this way, it's a powerful form that enables the writer to convey not just factual information, but feelings and emotions. That's from Robert Stein, Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible. So hyperbole communicates more than just facts. So to go back to my teenager example or my kid example, your kids could come home and say, Dad, I took a poll, 75 out of the 104 kids in my grade get to do this. That would be factual. Or they can use hyperbole and they can come home and say, Dad, all the kids get to do this. They're not trying to really deceive you. They're trying to communicate emotion and say, Dad, this really matters to me, and I think it ought to matter to you, and I think you're being entirely unreasonable in the thing that you've decided in this instance. There's a lot of emotion bound up in that, more than, well, it's 75 out of 104. Eh, 75%. All of them, Dad. Okay? Jesus used hyperbole to great, great, great effect. Look at Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We all read that and instinctively know you can't have a log in your eye. A speck? Yes. A log? No. That's exaggeration. Jesus, nobody has a log. What's the point? Well, he's saying something true, but he's making an emphatic point with emotion and feeling to say, You might need to help your brother with the speck in his eye. But it's entirely possible that you have a much bigger issue in your own life that you need to deal with first. And he uses hyperbole to great effect to make this point. Look at Matthew 23, 24. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You strain a gnat, make sure you get the gnat out, but then you swallow a camel. 
You read it and you say, Jesus, that's not possible. But it's hyperbole. And it's used to great effect to say, you're worried about some of the small matters of the law. That's fine. I don't want a gnat in my dinner either. Strain it out. Get it out. Take care of that stuff. But let's not just swallow the whole camel, right? Tithe your dill and your mint and your cumin and all the rest of it. That's great. Tithes are great. But let's not forget about the weightier matters of the law that you're just trampling over. Let's look at Mark chapter 9. You really need to know if this is hyperbole or not. Mark 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. When you read that, if you want to take Jesus' words seriously, you're going to have to decide, is that hyperbole or not? Some people in church history have decided it's not. They've tried to deal with sin by removing body parts. We're going to talk about why that's a bad idea here in just a minute. But you need to understand, it doesn't mean you can just ignore what he's saying, because what he's saying is actually really important. And when he talks about it'd be better to go lame than to have two feet and go to hell, there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in that kind of language. I mean, this is high stakes that we're talking about. And he's saying to you, I really want you to deal with sin. I want you to take this seriously. Don't play around with this stuff. Eternity is at stake in some of these matters. So he's using hyperbole to great effect. These next two I'll mention quickly. Hyperbole is often used to communicate something relating to the greatness of God. So I gave you a few verses that talk about God's going to bless Abraham with offspring as numerous as the sand on the beach or the stars in the heavens. It's not trying to give you a mathematical number. It's just trying to show you how great God's blessing is going to be. The other verses I gave you talk about the enemies of God's people being as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore. And it highlights how great the victory is that God wins over those people. It's not trying to say to you they had 10 trillion people in their army because that's how many stars there are. But it's hyperbole and it's exaggeration to make a point about the greatness of God. Next, hyperbole is often used to communicate truth about our relationships. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. you can look that up later. The one who spares the rod hates his son. That's hyperbole. It's using the word hate in a hyperbolic way to make a point and to help you understand that when you withhold discipline from a child, that is not in their best interest. When you discipline a child, that is actually in their best interest. They need that, and you have a responsibility to administer that. So it is used a lot in terms of our relationship. So how do you know if a statement in the Bible is hyperbole? Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, the statement is literally impossible. So 2 Samuel talks about Jonathan and David and how tough they were on the battlefield. It says they were as swift as eagle, uh, swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. I promise you they couldn't fly. And I promise you they were not stronger than a full-grown lion. It's not literally possible for a human being to outmuscle a full-grown lion. If you think you can do it, come to Kenya with us. We'll drop you out of the van on the safari and let you have at it. 
not going to happen, okay? It's not literally possible. So it's hyperbole, and it's saying these guys were something on the battlefield. It doesn't mean they were wimps. You're not free to just interpret it any way you want to. It's making a very clear point. These guys were tough. They were really something to be seen. Next, the statement conflicts with what the speaker says elsewhere. So in Luke 14, Jesus says, if you don't hate your parents, you can't be my disciple. Elsewhere, he condemns people who refuse to take care of their parents and couch it all in religious language. So when he says, hate your parents, it's contradicted by what he says when he says, provide for your parents and take care of your parents if you need to. It helps you understand that hate is not a literal hate. It's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make the point that your love for the Lord has got to far outshine your love for any other human being, including your own family, your own parents. Third, the statement has not been literally fulfilled. I gave you a couple examples of this. One, there's a place in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the temple and he says, not one of these stones will be left standing. You can travel to Israel today. There's some stones still standing. Jews gather there and pray all the time. They're stacked right up. You look at that and you say, okay, there's still some stones there, but the building was destroyed. So when he says not one stone left on another, that's hyperbole to say this thing is coming down in dramatic fashion. It's going to be horrific. Jesus talks about in other places Uh, all things are possible for the one who believes. Well, how many of you can dunk a basketball? I can't. I'm guessing most of you can't either. So does that mean we just don't believe enough? No. You look at an example like that and you say, it doesn't mean you can do anything in life, but it is teaching something important about faith and trusting the Lord. Next, statement would not achieve its desired goal. We talked about the cutting off a hand. That's not going to help you sin less. Gouging out an eye is not going to change the wickedness of your heart. You can sin with one hand. You can sin with one eye. You can sin being blind. You can sin with no hands. You can sin bound in a wheelchair. The problem is internal. It's not external. So it really wouldn't achieve its desired goal. It's hyperbole. Next, the statement Uh, uses a literary form prone to exaggeration like poetry or like Proverbs. And then last, the statement uses universal language. So an example of this last one would be Jesus saying, give to everyone who asks. Do you give to every guy standing on the corner asking? I don't. Is that violation of what Jesus is saying? I don't think it is. I think he's using universal language to make a point that we ought to be quick to give and we ought to be eager to give, okay? One word of caution with hyperbole. Be careful when explaining and applying biblical hyperbole. And the example I'll give you here is Matthew 5. Just a word of caution about how we talk about hyperbole. Matthew 5, Jesus says a couple of things about anger and lust. He talks about anger uh, being a violation of the law, that if you hate your brother in your heart, in a sense, you've committed murder. It's the way that Jesus talks about it, and he says the same thing with lust. You lusted after a woman in your heart. It's a sense in which you've committed adultery. I think there's a little bit of hyperbole in those passages, and I think we're wrong 
when we stand up and say, well, Jesus said hatred is the same as murder. Well, Jesus said lust is the same as adultery. I don't think that's exactly what he said. I don't think Jesus was drawing a moral equivalence between those things. I don't think Jesus was saying, look, if you're angry, you might as well kill him. You've already gone far enough. Look, if you've lusted, I mean, it's too late. I mean, might as well. I don't think that's the point or the implication of that passage. Jesus is talking to people who wanted to play games with the law of God and get out of feeling guilty for their sin. And what he's saying to them is, look, that commandment, number six, about murder, it has application beyond just you physically killing somebody. And you might be guilty of breaking the law without actually committing murder. He's not saying they're exactly the same thing. He's not saying you ought to treat all people who lust and all people who have anger or temper problems as you treat adulterers or murderers. They're not the same thing. But there is certainly an aspect to what Jesus is saying where he wants to make us understand. He wants to make the, the, the reader and the original audience understand. You can break God's law. You can be guilty of sin without committing the letter of the law when it comes to murder or adultery. But I don't think he's equating these things. So idiom, metaphor, and hyperbole. Bible is filled with this stuff. I mean, you just pay attention. It's on every page. You come across it all the time, and you've got to know that it's there, and you've got to understand how to make sense of it. The aim is to help you stand on the Word of God. And I know and you know, in the year 2021, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to build your life confidently on the Word of God because we're surrounded by people every day, day in and day out, all the time. We take it in with media, social media, education. It just, we're bombarded with people who laugh at the Word of God, who play games with the Word of God, who are just openly defiant to what the word of God says. And yet the call from Jesus is to allow God's word to be a rock underneath our feet, a foundation that we build our lives on and one that we're confident in, not one that we're embarrassed about, like, well, I'm gonna build my life on the Bible, but I don't know about this. I, I, I don't know about this part. I'm not sure about that part. The aim is to say, no, 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 this is a solid foundation. I can take my stand on the word of God. I can know that it's true, that it's good, that it's right, that it's unchanging, that this is God's revealed will for his people. And then we have confidence in those things. We don't have to apologize for the Bible. We don't have to feel uh, embarrassed about what the Bible says. We don't have to hear people trying to poke holes and play silly games with the Bible and get overly defensive and scared that maybe we've missed something because we understand we want to believe this book. We believe that it's true. We want to live it out. We want to apply it to our lives. When it's intended to be taken literally, we want to take it literally. When there's literary devices in it, we want to understand those things, not to play games with it, but so we understand what God is saying to his people and we understand how to apply it to our lives. So there you go. Next week we'll wrap up. We're going to talk about parables, which is uh, one of the funnest things to talk about when it comes to interpreting the Bible.